They're making mockery out of the name of God. They made it a house of merchandise. Matthew says in the second cleansing, they had made it a den of robbers. The emphasis in the second cleansing was on their dishonesty. The emphasis here is just the fact that they're present. My father's house has been turned into a shop. It's a marketplace where people ought to be able to come to pray and reverence God. And so it stirs up in him a righteous indignation. This is not some simple country prophet who is protesting. This is the Messiah, the Lord God himself. In fact, he makes a claim here to Didi when he says, stop making my father's house, my father's. He is equating himself with the father, which later they will throw rocks at him for that statement. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Cleansing the Temple. Yesterday, we began to look at Jesus' dealing with the money changers who were dishonoring God by selling their oxen and sheep in the temple. As we pick up today, Pastor Carl disproves the notion that some have that Jesus was just gentle and meek and capable of righteous anger. Join us in John chapter 2, verse 13, as we continue. Evidently, there would have been a lot of ropes laying around from the various animals, and he put some of them together and made them into a whip, and the Bible says he drove them all out of the temple. Who's them all? Pantas. It's a reference to the men. He didn't use this whip simply on the backs of sheep and oxen. He used it on the back of men. The text says he drove them all out with the sheep and the oxen. Suddenly, people are fleeing everywhere. Tables are dumped over. Money's rolling everywhere. One man cleaned the whole thing. He's no wimpy man. He's not like the pictures of so many artists where he's an anemic, little, timid, shriveled up wimp. Jesus gentle, mild, and meek, like the hymn says. That's the farthest thing from the truth as it relates to this particular passage of Scripture. I don't like those pictures that make him so weak because it's not really a picture of the Savior. He was a man's man. You don't take a scourge like this and drive everyone out of the temple and not be some kind of a man. The son was clearing the father's house with a lash. Verse 16, the explanation comes. And to those who are selling the doves, who said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. How dare you turn my father's house into a house of profit? They're making mockery out of the name of God. They made it a house of merchandise. Matthew says in the second cleansing, they had made it a den of robbers. The emphasis in the second cleansing was on their dishonesty. The emphasis here is just the fact that they're present. My father's house has been turned into a shop. It's a marketplace where people ought to be able to come to pray and reverence God. And so it stirs up in him a righteous indignation. This is not some simple country prophet who is protesting, this is the Messiah, the Lord God himself. In fact, he makes a claim here to Didi when he says, stop making my father's house, my father's. He is equating himself with the father, which later they will throw rocks at him for that statement. Now, notice the explanatory note in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. 
right out there on the margin, Psalm 69.9. That's where it's quoted from. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. There are certain psalms in the Bible you ought to know, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, 110, 118, 69, because they're repeatedly quoted throughout the New Testament. This psalm, if I recall, seven times. And it's a Davidic psalm, not simply on the life of David, though it has historical reference to his life, but also to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first 21 verses are really our picture of the Lord Jesus on the cross and what was going through his heart. In fact, in verse 21, he'll actually quote that on the cross. Verse 21 of Psalm 69 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. You remember that statement, I'm sure. Zeal for thy house will consume me. Psalm 69.9. But let me read the verse before that, verse 8 of that psalm. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. And of course, we'll see that fulfilled before this gospel is over. Not his mother, not his sisters, but his brothers thought he had gone crazy with a Messiah complex of sorts. When we come to chapter 7 of John, his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Mark says his own people, his kin, thought he had lost his senses. And I'm sure these men felt the disgrace that Christ's purity of heart brought when there in their own hometown, he was thrown out of the temple, the synagogue there in Nazareth. And I'm sure maybe every time they went, people would talk. In either case, they weren't even believing in him, didn't until after the resurrection. But then the verse that follows is also a prophecy. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Throughout this psalm, we're going to find King David crying out to God because of his profound burden for the house of God. Zeal for your house consumes me. If you read the whole psalm, he's crying out to God because of the incredible opposition he experiences because of those who do not honor and reverence God like he does. In verse 4 of that psalm, he will write, Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. And of course, John is going to quote that in chapter 15 when he says from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of it, they hated me without a cause. So here's King David in the psalm, burdened and broken over the profound apathy of his day for the true worship of God. And he says, zeal for thy house consumed me. King David was always defending the honor of God, which is one of the things, I suppose, that made him a man after God's own heart. And in Psalm 69, the message is, God, I have been so zealous for your house, so consumed for pure worship that everyone is after me. Everybody is persecuting me. And so like David, here is the Lord Jesus in the midst of absolute hypocrisy, standing for truth, calling sins in. And folks are upset. Now, on three other occasions, they're going to use this event. They'll say, ah, you're the one who said you would destroy the temple. These Jews never forgot this event. It's one of the prime accusations that they try to use to bring about the crucifixion of Christ. And the Apostle John understands that as Christ quotes this psalm, he is anticipating, as David writes it, John quotes it, he's anticipating, this is not just about David, but David's greater son, one who would come from his loins through, of course, the Virgin Mary and the miraculous virgin conception. You say, well, is there a temple today? Yes, there is. Where is it? Here's one stone. There's stones, living stones all over. We are the temple of the living God, the Bible says. You are the sanctuary made without human hands. And so that's the first vignette. 
as the Lord Jesus, not in sin, but in righteous anger, responds to the travesty of this day. Hypocrisy and false religion makes God mad. It does. Let him be accursed. The apostle will write, if any man presents to you a gospel contrary to the one which we've preached. Secondly, we move from Jesus in the building to Jesus in his body. And what ha happens here is really fascinating. Look at verse 18 as we consider the question of the Jews. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, what sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? The Jews here mentioned obviously are the Sanhedrin, those Pharisees, those Sadducees, who made up the ruling religious body of the day. And here's their challenge. Who gave you the right? What gave you the right to do this? They wanted a sign. They wanted a miracle like one of the Old Testament prophets authenticating their action. They wanted to know who gave them this authority. And certainly in one sense, they had a right to question someone's credentials, especially one who would take such bold action. But the way they formed the question, it's a wicked question. It's an ignorant question. And it shows how far away from God they are. They don't stop really and reflect and say, is what he did right? Was it just? In fact, what I find interesting is they never come back and say that what he did was wrong. And do you know why? Because they knew it was right. They knew what was happening in this place was a sham, that the temple needed to be cleansed. But they didn't want to face that because they were greedy. Jesus will say in Luke 16, they love money. They knew the whole operation was built on merchandising the name of God, and they were unwilling to face their sin. They're not really concerned with purity of worship and introducing people to the Lord God. They're just concerned about precedent, and we'll see this over and over and over again. It reminds me of a little church I was in as a brand new Christian. We went to this business meeting they had, and they had this um, little book that they followed. It's called Robert's Rules of Order. And some people in that business meeting seemed to take a certain delight if someone in the meeting didn't precisely follow the Robert's rules of order. And I'm thinking, where is this in the Bible? I didn't know much, but I knew this was weird. And they were so upset, they would argue, oh, you're out of order. The rule book says this. Some of them carried it like they carried their Bible. But their own carnality and sin and division in the church, they totally ignored. That's kind of the sense here. These leaders are involved with issues of precedent, but not really issues of the heart. But not only is it a carnal question reflecting their hardness of heart, it's a foolish question showing their lack of faith. It really is a picture of how deficient their faith is. Certainly, had they believed the Lord Jesus was some kind of hooligan or some false prophet, they would have thrown him out on his ear. They would have said, away with you. They might have even killed him. But they don't do that. Because he comes in with such majestic authority, they're dumbfounded. In fact, they obviously sense something is here because they assume he must have some kind of divine origin to ask for a sign. And obviously, that's what they were so interested in, as we will see, signs. As if God was their divine errand boy and their whim to do their little miracle. What sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? It's kind of ironic because in one sense, he already gave a monumental sign. I mean, what more of a sign do you need than one man clearing out the entire temple? But Jesus will say an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. In fact, he will do miracle after miracle in front of these men for three years. And at the conclusion of his ministry, they say, what you do, you do by the devil's power. And that's their question. Consider the answer of Christ. 
It's a rather veiled response. Verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. These leaders are blinded by their own greed. And since they have a darkened mind, the Lord gives them a veiled response. Very often because of their unbelief, he spoke to them in parables. Now, at face value, Jesus seemed to be inviting these Jews to destroy the temple. And in three days, he'd rebuild it. You want a sign? Well, here it is. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. But on a literal level, it doesn't appear that they're going to take that challenge because of their response in verse 20. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? It was an incredible temple, the Herodian temple. Took at least up till this time in history, 46 years to construct. Herod was in it, not because he loved the Jews, but because he loved politics and needed their favor to keep Caesar's favor. But John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, what's going on here? Well, Christ is using a play on words. Jesus said, you can destroy this temple, but he's not speaking about the literal temple around them, but his literal body. You can kill me. But in three days later, I'm coming out of the grave. I'll give you the sign. There comes a point in Christ's ministry when they accuse him of doing miracles by the power of the devil. And he shows how foolish and illogical their own statements are, as you read it in Matthew 12. He says, now the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. But even when he rises from the dead, most persist in their unbelief. Of course, later on, the Sanhedrin will get some false witnesses and they'll take this statement here in John 2. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days I'll build another one made without hands. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple, but you destroy this temple. He was not speaking of a literal temple. He was speaking of the temple of his own body. And really, as they were literally fulfilling this prophecy crucifying the Lord God, they still hung this on him. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha! You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, this is really profound when you consider what's going on here. But he was speaking, verse 21 says, of the temple of his body. Because Christ claimed to be God, we should not be at all surprised that the Lord Jesus would use a double entendre here and compare his own body to the very temple itself there in Jerusalem. Now, remember in the Old Testament, God's presence would come first in the tabernacle. That was kind of a portable tent-like structure. They used it all the way through the 40 years of wandering and for a period of time when they got into the promised land. But that was ultimately replaced with a permanent structure known as the temple. But in either the tabernacle or the temple, in a region called the Holy of Holies, the Shekinah glory of God would appear. In fact, when Moses would go into that tabernacle and come out, his face would be so bright he would have to cover it because people couldn't stand to look. It's just the afterglow that came from being in the presence of God. So by calling his own body the temple, among other things, it's a claim to deity. Jesus is reminding us that he is the living temple of God, that he is a divine human person. He will say later in John 14, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He basically says there's a mutual indwelling between me and the Father. And just as God the Father indwelt the Old Testament temple, he was saying that he was the living temple of God. And just as that Old Testament temple was the center of worship, he now becomes the center of worship. And just as that temple was the place of sacrifice, he became the very place of sacrifice. And three days later, he came out of that grave as the true temple of God. He was a type. He was an illustration 
of all that God pictured in the Old Testament. And interesting as you read Psalm 69, we know seven statements were actually at least verbally said by Christ on the cross in the Gospels. He may have said much more, but if he didn't say it, he at least thought it because there's a few Messianic Psalms in the Old Testament of all that was going through his heart as he hung there in Golgotha. And one of the statements was, zeal for thy house has consumed me. All that your house meant, it brought me to this point. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. John is the first to admit that neither he nor the disciples grasped the full significance of this statement at the time. It was only after he rose from the dead that they recalled the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. By the scripture, of course, he's referring to the Old Testament, maybe Psalm 16, maybe Isaiah 53 that speak of his resurrection, maybe the theme that's taught throughout the Old Testament. But in either case, they understood that he would be resurrected. Now we come to the third vignette. The first vignette, Jesus in the building. He cleanses his father's house, a claim to deity. Second vignette, Jesus and his body. He will predict he rises from the dead. He does a claim to deity, a proof of deity. Now Jesus and the believers. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, same time, same channel, during the feast, remember this feast lasted seven days, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. Now a great many folks might read that and say, My one, this is wonderful, they, they were coming to faith in Christ. Well, they exhibited a faith, but there are different kinds of faith in the Bible, and this is not what we would typically refer to as saving faith. Consider first the foundation of their faith. Many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. Now, believing in someone's name in that day meant much more than it does to us today. For us, a name might just be a, a label to distinguish one person from another. But for a Jew, someone in the ancient world, a person's name stood for all that they were, for their whole personality. That's why when David in Psalm 5 says he loves the name of God, he's not talking about he just loves the way it sounds, but he loves all that God is. Or later in, in, in Psalm uh, 20, he will speak about praying in the name of God. He, he's not just talking about tacking some phrase on. He's talking about praying in the name of God because of who God is and all that his name represents and what he is able to do. Now these people, the text says, believe in the name. But I want you to see, they don't understand all that much about the name at this point. It is true. But as many as received him to them who believed in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. But in that context in John 1, he's referring to people who understand something about the work and the worth of Christ. But we're going to see that every time the word believe is used in John's gospel, it's not always a reference to saving faith. Now, typically, when the word in or upon or on is accompanied with, in fact, in one particular Greek construction, in every instance, it refers to saving faith. But most of the time, the context has to bear it out. When we come to John 8, we'll learn about the Jews who believed him. But Jesus is going to turn around and say, you're of your father, the devil. You're lost as can be. If you were like Abraham, you would have done the deeds of Abraham. James will speak about the demons believe that God is one. Understand, not all faith is the kind of faith that will write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. They saw the miracles, and they liked what they saw. And in that sense, they believed on the name of Christ. But God wants more than a miracle kind of faith. That kind of faith always wants more, something that's bigger and better. And these ministries that build their whole thing on miracles really scare me. Because what you find in the Scripture is the signs that John mentioned are repeatedly connected to the word that he preaches. 
And he's going to invariably connect the two. In fact, when we come to chapter 6, some of these earlier followers will turn back because they want to make Christ king and he doesn't want to be their king. Now, what we see here is not rank unbelief. It's simply what we might call miracle faith. I'm not discrediting the importance of signs and believing them. But if you believe the sign and you don't believe the word that ultimately goes with it, it's not enough. A lot of people today say, well, I got faith. And they do in one respect. They say, well, you know, my baby was sick and we asked God to heal and only God could have done what happened. Or uh, we trust God to put food on the table and to make the house payment and to protect our family. But that's not the kind of faith that will save you. They have a very limited view at this point of the name of Christ, and we're going to see that unfold in this book. It involves believing not just that He is Messiah, the Son of God, that He died on the cross in your place and rose from the dead, but embracing that with your heart. That brings us to the flaw in their faith. Look at verse 24. And this becomes by the context clear that it's not true saving faith. Jesus, on His part, was not, literally, the Greek text says believing. It's the same word. They were not he was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because of the miracles, many professed belief in him, but Jesus didn't accept their profession. And again, the original text says he did not believe in them. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them because he knew they did not have the kind of faith that he wanted. He knew what was in their heart. For some, he knew the wickedness of their Actions and others, maybe the weakness. Some people call these unsaved believers. Now, we're going to see in John's gospel, Jesus doing miracles. And it's incredible. Remember when we come to the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, the people are going to be enamored with the miracle. We love Jesus. And then he's going to begin to talk about the significance of the miracle. And he's going to connect that miracle with his own death and crucifixion and his, their need to humble themselves and to trust in a Savior. And when they hear that message, they leave by the droves. People who want his works but not his word can never share in his life. And so it was a spurious faith. Verse 24 further explains, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now here again in verse 25, he's reminding us that Jesus is God. He's reminding us that Jesus is omniscient. Only someone who can know what's in your heart. Only God knows that. Now people say they know what's in your heart. Only God can read the heart. And the text here says, he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man. That means it didn't matter what other people said about you. It didn't matter what you said about yourself. What mattered is what he thought about you. What he thinks about you. And he knows not just your name and your face. He knows what's in your heart. He knows all men. Because he created them all and he can see them all with his piercing, omniscient eyes. He knows whether you're his friend or his foe. He knows whether you have a true faith or a false faith. He knows what is in all men. He knew the character of Peter in John 1. He knew what Nathaniel was like. He said to the, he told the Samaritan woman, all things, knew everything about her. He knew how the disciples felt in the upper room. He knew that one of his disciples was not a true believer. He knew that the repentance of the adulterous woman was real. He knew that the Jews had murder in their hearts. He knows the human heart. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows every sin we've ever committed. He knows us perfectly. He knows our motive. In spite of all that, 
He still loves us. Now, there's three vignettes here. Jesus in his building. He became the ultimate and final sacrifice. And when he died there, the Bible says the veil of the temple from top to bottom tore in two. And the sacrificial system was now null and void because God from heaven had ripped the curtain into the holy place where the animal was offered because now his son had offered the once and for all sacrifice. That's a picture of his death. Jesus in his body. That's a picture of his resurrection. Jesus and the believers. Now that's the choice we have to make. The Lord Jesus does not entrust himself to those who have a spurious faith, just an initiative kind of faith. There's a lot of people like that in the church. But when you truly embrace him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says he will entrust himself to you. He will reveal himself to you, John 15 will say, as his friend. Now, what kind of faith do you have? Is it real or phony? Does Christ entrust himself to you? Now, our Father, we thank you for this hour, for this moment, to be able to open your word, to examine what you would say to us. And I pray today for someone who's here, who knows a lot about you. They're not outwardly rebellious. They believe much about you. But like these Jews, they have never ultimately come and humbled themselves like a child, admitted their bankruptcy, and trusted the Lord Jesus with his death and resurrection to save them, to give them the kind of life that would follow in his word. I pray today, Father, you'd help someone to do that. I thank you for your promises that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. You're here today and you don't really know whether or not you're saved. You need to be saved. If the Spirit does not bear witness with your human spirit that you've become a child of God, you need to call upon Christ. And I would invite you to make my words yours. Would you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. I turn from my sin. And I trust you as the risen Lord to save me with your blood. Lord Jesus, save me and make me to be whatever you would have me to be. Now, Father, we know that this gospel is written not just to help men to believe, but in believing that we might find life in his name. And we pray that we would examine our own temple. Our temple, our body is to be a house of prayer. Help it to be that. Help it to be a place of worship, giving credence and honor to the one alone who deserves our adoration. And may our temple of living stones here be pure, that we would in no way obscure men from the true way of salvation. And may we never exploit the name of the Lord Jesus for profit. Help your church and this nation to repent. You said that judgment is to begin with the household of God. Help this church that we have marketed before a lost world to repent of its sin and to make things right with you. That in all ways, Christ would be seen and honored. And we ask this in his holy name. Amen. If you enjoyed today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 006. 
don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.